Hey guys, welcome to episode 156 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. Would this even be a True Crime Couple episode if we didn't start by telling you how much we love you all? Thank you so much for everything, for listening, for reviewing, for joining Patreon, and for just being amazing. We are a little extra sentimental on this episode because we are recording it before, like one day before what will be our sixth year anniversary. It's wild. We've been doing this for six years. Can you believe it? Six years of the true crime couple. We said this on the Patreon episode, which we're also releasing today, that we don't remember a time before the podcast. And I actually mean that. There is no pre-podcast for us. Yeah. It just if it's just like we we've got into this and and really established a community and we enjoy everyone in it and it's like I wouldn't want a world without it. I know. You know. It's special and we really enjoy doing it. It's something that we can't thank you enough for because this podcast obviously would be nothing without listeners. We always say it we would just be talking to ourselves. So we weirdos just talking yeah. to ourselves all day. <laughs> So whether you've been with us for six years or this is your first episode listening, thank you so much. And we really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you, guys. Now, without any further ado, let's give you all what you came here for. John, do you want to hear something crazy? You bet. I promise you this case is not what it seems. And just when you think you have it all figured out or that it's over, I promise you that you will not see what's coming next. And it may seem like the buildup is a lot, but I promise you, it's needed. But before we get into it, I just want to provide a trigger warning about suicide in case anyone is sensitive to that topic. So John, let's head north to Canada so I can tell you about the case of the Dell family. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Today's case will take us to Killaloo, Ontario, where we will discuss the Dell family. It's important to say, as it is central to the case, that Killaloo is a very small town, village actually, located in eastern Ontario. And when I say very small, I mean it. In 2001, which is the last time the town was counted by a census, um, since 2001, what it's done is um, Ontario actually counts it as a part of like three communities together because it's actually that small. So the last time we have a true, genuine census of just that area, the population was 660. That's not a lot at all. No, it's not. So that was in 2001. So you can imagine that in 1995, the population's right around that same number. Well, I already can tell it. That means only one thing. Everybody knows everyone. Right. And that's... Like, very detailed, I'm sure. And that's really why I brought it up, because in a small town, as you know, things that happen spread like wildfire, and that's very central to this case. In the family, there was Sherelle. Yes, her name is Sherelle Dell. 
Sherelle Dell. Sherelle Dell. Say that 10 times as fast. Yeah, it's hard. And her husband's name is Scott. And together they have three children. It's actually funny because Sherelle's maiden name is Scott. So oh, that it's is just funny. like very interesting. So before I tell you about the state of their marriage, let me go back to the beginning when they first met. Sherelle had grown up in a town just over 100 kilometers, that's 62 miles, northeast of Killaloo, called Wilberforce. There, Scott Dell and his family had a vacation cabin. During the rest of the year, they lived in Connecticut, so they were actually American citizens. And it was 1968. Scott was getting ready to register for the draft for the Vietnam War. He and his family were scared. His parents were more the rule-following type, but Scott had been described, affectionately, I promise, by his mother as a long-haired Nixon hater. And the last thing that he wanted to do was fight a war halfway around the world for a country that saw his life as disposable. So he decided to move to the family's cottage full-time to avoid the draft. Now, because he did so in this way and because they already had an established residency in Canada, he was not viewed as a draft dodger. I was just going to ask you that. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a special situation because a lot of American citizens that left for Canada um, didn't have established residencies there in the first place, which he had since his birth, actually. So it's a little bit different. Scott met Sherelle at a party in 1970. He was 20 and she was 17. Scott would later reflect to his friends that while at the party, he noticed a beautiful young girl. She was looking for a lighter with a cigarette in her mouth. He pulled out his lighter and lit her cigarette and she looked gratefully back up at him. And it was in that instant that he knew he had met this girl for a larger purpose that he had been put on this earth to take care of her. That's very adorable. It's an adorable meat story. It is. (laughs) So after just a few months of dating, Scott asked Sherelle to marry him, and she agreed. The couple moved around from place to place, and unfortunately their relationship was as tumultuous as their living status. Sherelle and Scott were notorious for splitting up only to reconcile months or weeks later. Soon their friends and family knew never to say anything, just let their relationship kind of run its course because it was that situation where your friend or family member splits with the person they're with, you kind of talk your crap, and then they get back together and then it's awkward. So they kind of just always let the couple do what they were going to do. It's probably the best course of action for every situation that is just like this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they especially didn't say anything when there was um, the biggest, most tumultuous split up to date. And that was in the spring of 1975. This time, um, Sherelle actually moves away from Scott and she moves to Toronto where she works as a stripper. She returned to Scott in early 1976, just in time to celebrate their sixth wedding anniversary. 
and when she returned to him, she had two things to tell him. One, I'm sorry. And two, I'm pregnant. Wow. So this this uh, path that they have uh, with each other is kind of, it's bumpy. Yeah, it was meet cute at first, and then it, it gets a little rocky. I like how they're celebrating their anniversary, but they're, they've been apart in a way. Like, I know. So many times. Hey, but you know what? Whatever floats their boat. What's normal to one is not normal to, to others. That's exactly correct. Without even a second thought, though, Scott told Sherelle that he loved her and that he would raise that child, a girl, as his own. And he did. The couple then adopted a second child, another girl, in 1989. Court records protect the names of the Dell children, and I think that's for the better, as you'll realize as we get further into this case. And it's also in 1989 that the couple moved to Killaloo, where they lived in a beautiful log farmhouse. And that's where they also had the only child that they biologically shared together, a son in November of 1989. So now that's how they have three children. Okay. Scott had meant it when he said he wanted to take care of Sherelle. He knew that she had a troubled youth from what she had told him. And he knew that she self-medicated with drugs and alcohol when she was younger because of the sexual abuse that she said she had suffered as a child at the hands of uh, one of her grandparents. Scott also got it. Scott always got it, and he always understood, which was why when they would fight and separate, he would always take her back. He knew that she had trouble with things and coping sometimes, but he had felt like maybe Sherelle had gone a bit too far with his understanding and trust in 1992. In February of that year, Sherelle had met someone in her incest survivors group, a woman named Gay Doherty. Gay was a former nun who was six years older than her. The two were instantly attracted to each other and began a sexual relationship, the first Sherelle had with a woman. The women would meet in secret, but Sherelle did a good job of hiding her affair from Scott, despite the fact that they were so busy, not just as parents of three, they were also foster parents of two, and they were a part of like a a sort of off-the-grid bartering system that existed in the village of Killaloo. Because they had moved there to kind of become self-sufficient. And within that community, there was this trading system going on. And the couple, because they had a farmhouse, they were looking into kind of being the providers of like healthy food for the community. Okay. So they they had a lot going on. But now she's having an affair as well. So there's a lot on Sherelle's plate. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I It's crazy, though, because, like, tensions seem to be high. I feel like it's at a constant. Yeah. And it's, but it's, it's, it's at a constant, but under the radar, where I don't think either one of them have even had a chance to speak, I feel like. So, I, I don't know, but it's sad to hear about all the trauma, though, so far that she has endured. It's, it's interesting, and it kind of makes you see why she's maybe done the things that she's done. Right, like I think that she has a tumultuous life because she had a tumultuous upbringing 
And I think that Scott is trying to provide a sense of stability for her. But then at the same time, it's rough now because now we're entering 1992. So he's been living 22 years of his life in chaos. So he must love her tremendously in order to kind of like put up with all of that. I agree. And one would make the argument could not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, like a better, like something at the end that was worth all that sacrifice maybe isn't there. Could that build animosity? Oh, it totally could build animosity and I, and frustration and resentment. But I think at this stage in their relationship, since it has been crazy since the beginning, they know nothing but craziness. So they kind of thrive and survive in this state of chaos which must be really difficult for their children. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it is. But I imagine trying to raise kids in an environment like that, too. That's and, not fair to them either. And foster children. Yeah. So now remember what I said about Killaloo being a small town. And it was sad, but everyone seemed to know what was going on between Sherelle and Gay, except for Scott himself. But in the summer of 1992, Sherelle was going to change that. She decided that Scott was going to find out about her relationship with Gay in a big way. On July 8th, 1992, she took the only vehicle that the family had, a van, and went to Toronto for a week with Gay. Scott and the kids were stranded relying on others for rides that week. When Sherelle finally came home, she had Gay with her, and she introduced Scott to her, and she explained to him that they had been having an affair. She told him that she wanted her to move in with them so that she could be with them both. Are you kidding me? Yeah. She wanted like (laughs) a, a thruple situation, but like only for her. That is insane. Wait, okay, hold on. We gotta. We just gotta call it the way it is. I mean, this is partially kind of a joke, but at the same time, I have to say it's better than other situations. At least in this case, she's just flat out showing him and telling him what she's doing, and not it leading to something that he finds out later. I mean, obviously they've been doing this a while. Yes. But I mean, she did have the wherewithal to be like, you know what? I'm doing the wrong thing here. I'm just gonna come out and tell him, and let's see what happens. Well, I don't think that she thought that. <laughs> It threw like that. Like, I think she thought that Scott was because he had spent 22 years always kind of like cowtailing to her needs and her desires that she thought he was going to say yes. But he refused. And because he refused, she told him that she would be leaving him. And he told her that if that was what she needed to do for now, so be it. Like, Scott upon reflection and what his family will later say was that he believed that this was kind of just a phase for Sherelle. And like, I mean, I get that, but I mean, this is, this is pretty major. I mean, and and I don't know if I explain myself better off good when I first said that, but like what I'm trying to say is we've seen where like, it's just completely unfaithful and like whatever, but the fact that she thinks that it would be okay 
for her to bring this girl around and like him to accept it just because he's accept everything else just kind of shows you though that how much she really doesn't care about him she's taking advantage of him and she's been testing the boundaries for their entire relationship that's shocking scott's mother myra would later say that scott as he always was with sherelle was not critical of her for the choices that she made he believed that in time she would come back and that Gay was just giving her something that he could not right now. And eventually, as she always did, she would return to him and they would be a family again. But that didn't seem to be the case. Over the next two years, the couple was involved in a contentious court battle surrounding custody, child support, the farmhouse, and allegations of abuse. Throughout it all, Scott never gave up hope that Sherelle would eventually come to her senses and the family could be back together again. Now, I know you may have a lot of questions about um, the court battles, but we'll get into them later. Okay. Gay Doherty spent a lot of time with the three children now because um, what happens is Sherelle and the children leave the farmhouse. Now Scott lives there by himself and they move in with Gay. So, of course, Gay kind of becomes like their second mother. She grew to love them and she's kind of takes on this role as the third adult in this like unconventional and most often dysfunctional family. But but she is there for them. And a court document will later reflect that Miss Doherty had a strong and healthy relationship with the children that was both positive and needed given their familial situation. But it had been hard for Gay to stay. She would later reflect that in reality, the appeal of Sherelle, what had attracted her to the woman, had worn off about three months into their relationship. And she only stayed as long as she did for the children. Because she loved them. That's that's bizarre. Like, I wonder why. Like, I wonder why that even happened. Is it because maybe, like, you know, home life didn't suit her, maybe? No, I think it's because um, Sherelle is a very captivating person. I think she does a really good job of roping people in. She's very, um, like, she has, like, a, a strong sexuality about her. She's kind of like a a siren of some sorts. Okay. And home life, I mean, we see it all the time. We've done cover this in so many cases. When people are having affairs, they're exciting. And now when you have to like wake up together and share the responsibilities of household duties and taking care of three kids and being a foster parent, it's a uh, it's a lot of work. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what I'm what I'm saying is like that, you know, the home life of like Every, you know, everyday life, you know, with three children. Right. Um, you know, that definitely changes things. And again, I think this kind of speaks to the maturity and uh, social emotional intelligence of Scott. But he also recognized the positive impact that Gay had on his children's lives. And eventually, um, Gay and Scott end up becoming really good friends. Especially um, when Gay 
breaks things off with Sherelle in April of 1995. So three years later. So that couple, they were together for three years. Okay. And now Gay Doherty and Scott Dell are kind of like the best of friends. That's actually kind of funny. It's, it, it's almost like a 90s sitcom, right? It is like a 90s and like <laughs> trauma bonding. Well, like a like modern family before modern family. Yeah. Right? Like a With a touch of trauma with a touch of trauma and craziness yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just two months later Sherelle already had a new girlfriend a woman named nancy fillmore at the time nancy would visit Sherelle every weekend but the couple planned to move in together soon eventually Sherelle applied for a mortgage at 18 mill street in killaloo At the time, she didn't have enough money for a down payment on the property. So Nancy lent her her half. So the down payment for the property on Mill Street was going to be $6,000. Nancy was going to put in $3,000 and so was Sherelle. But Sherelle couldn't come up with her three. So Nancy is going to put down the entire $6,000. And the women start a new life in that house. The only thing that kind of broke what Nancy thought was going to be the beginning of her happy new, like kind of ready-made family was the presence of Scott. When Sherelle was dating Gay, Gay had at first not been fond of Scott, mainly because of the custody battle and the things that Sherelle would tell her about him, but she had always kept quiet about it not wanting ever to stop the children from seeing their father or getting involved in the custody dispute between her girlfriend and her ex. I don't want to say ex-husband because they never got divorced. They're technically still married. Still married. Okay. And so, like I said, Gay was very quiet about this. And I think that's what kind of allowed them to become friends afterward, especially after... His cancer diagnosis. That's sad. Yeah. So backtracking a little bit, Scott had been diagnosed with throat and tongue cancer. It had not been a good prognosis, and everyone thought that he was going to die. Um, he was considered it was considered terminal, but he didn't die. He fought very hard for nine months, and Scott Dell had survived a death sentence. And as he was getting better, and as his relationship with Sherelle was getting better, and Sherelle's relationship with Gay was kind of growing distant, Scott had been hopeful that the two of them would work it out. I feel so bad for him. Yeah, so he's like, I have to survive cancer um, because I see that Gay and my wife are not liking this relationship anymore, so maybe we can be a family again. Just like he's still holding on to hope, and I think that's just like the... The most innocent, saddest part of this so far. Like he's a pure soul. He's a pure soul and just holding on to hope. Yeah. That he can get back with Sherelle and just forget about everything in the past and move on. I mean, that really is impressive for a human being to like feel that strongly about somebody and really try to make things work. And I don't know, just, I don't know, it just seems like. You feel bad. I don't know. Well, it's rare to see someone who seems to have such empathy and raw emotions and selflessness. I also think nowadays to look and to reflect and look back at something like that, 
we don't do that nowadays. No. I feel like a lot of the times most people just give up on something if it's not working. And it seems like he really, really is trying to make it work. Even, you know, through the whole, like, child custody and stuff. Right. Because that could be tumultuous and to the point where, like, then everyone's just done. Exactly. So, impressive. This is why I think he's better as a Canadian than an American. Well, it speaks... Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, that's true. That's true. It's definitely too nice for America. (laughs) So... There was Scott thinking that everything was kind of going to go his way. I mean, he's surviving a death sentence. He might get back together with his wife. But then Nancy showed up. And Nancy was not quiet like Gay had been. She made it very clear that she didn't like Scott. She didn't like him just showing up at the house. And she wanted him to get the hint that Sherelle had moved on and was now with her. They would never be getting back together. And as you can imagine, this caused a lot of strain, and it was something that Scott had not been happy about either. So, although, yes, Sherelle being with Gay had hurt him, it wasn't like this. Like, well, Nancy was yeah. abrasive with him. Well, Gay was neutral. Yes. As, as neutral as you could possibly be. But this is the total opposite. Yes. So it had seemed like something had been brewing with the Dell family for a very long time, 25 years to be exact, and that something would eventually give and tragedy would strike. On December 29th, 1995, just the day after Sherelle had convinced Nancy to relent and let Scott come over and give his children their Christmas gifts and be able to watch them open them, that something horrible finally happened for the family. It had been a happy day, or so everyone thought. But the next day, on the 29th, Scott was supposed to go shopping with his good friend, Gay Doherty. Okay. Like, these two are really, like, best friends. (laughs) It's so interesting. But um, they actually had become really close and gay was very appreciative of scott because when scott would be able to take the children for a certain amount of time when sherelle would let him he would always invite gay over he recognized how much gay loved his children and how her presence in their life was so positive and how they reacted to seeing her and he appreciated that so he wanted to keep her in their children's lives that's incredible. Yeah. I, I think that it's just a, another example of him being totally selfless. But Scott never showed up for his shopping trip with Gay. Something that was very unlike him. And it worried her. So she decided to go to the farmhouse and see if he was all right. She found that the back door had been left open. Something she saw as a bad sign. She knew that Scott always kept both doors to the house locked. When she walked in, on his desk, she found a half-drunk bottle of wine with a wine glass next to it, still containing some wine. Next to the bottle, on the messy desk, she found a series of notes that seemed to be scribbled down on the paper in a kind of frantic manner that was barely legible. What she could read, she found not to be coherent or make sense. It seemed to be the ramblings of someone who was not well. One of the notes read, 
What did you think would happen if I drank a bottle of wine and listened to music that we used to listen to? I'm going to think about you and me together. And another note said, I feel like holding you close to me, like never before. I feel like making love to you. I feel like all the bad stuff would go away. This seemed like Scott was very upset when he wrote this. And it gave Gay a reason to be even more concerned. And at first she was kind of apprehensive to look around the house because she didn't want to invade his privacy. But seeing these notes, she was like, no, I think I really need to look around now. They got to follow it up. Gay eventually did find Scott in the house. He was laying on the bedroom floor, only half dressed. He appeared to have vomited, and it was very clear to her that he was dead. Even years later, when Gay recalled the moment that she found Scott, she still breaks down. It was very traumatizing to find her friend like that. Someone who had just fought so hard to stay alive was now dead. The two had common ground. They were both exes of Sherelle, and they loved the same children. It had been so hard to know that such a beautiful soul had left this world. And at first, she didn't want to accept it. She got down on the floor, and she shook him, and she hit him, and she tried to wake him up. And then she tried to perform CPR. But she knew it was all in vain. She knew that there was nothing she could do. After all of that, Gay got up and called the Killaloo Detachment of the Ontario Provincial Police. And within the hour, they were at the scene. When the crime scene techs and detectives showed up at the home, they analyzed the scene before them. They took pictures and bagged anything that could be considered evidence. Based on the fact that there was no sign of a struggle, no forced entry, or additional wounds on Scott, as well as the fact that it appeared that he had left a suicide note, they kind of came to the conclusion that he had died by suicide. However, this is still what law enforcement refer to as an unattended death, meaning that nobody saw it happen. And because of that, they are going to have to open an investigation and perform an autopsy. And of course, because the wine was found in the house, a toxicology report. I have a cool question. I don't know if you mentioned this, but you said he was partially naked or partially dressed like how like he was preparing for bed so like he had still had his like shirt and sweater on but he was only in his underwear okay from the bottom down okay also um because the wine like usually a toxicology report only refers to like the person and like their blood being tested but because the wine was next to the suicide note they also are going to test the wine that's smart So according to the toxicology report, the wine contained extremely high doses of ethylene glycol, which is more commonly referred to as antifreeze. Serious? Yes. Huh. In Scott's bloodstream, there was also found a lethal dose of the same chemical. So guys, don't worry. I'll save you the Google and I'll be put on the FBI watch list for you. I googled what happens if a person ingests antifreeze, like a lethal amount. Okay. 
Well, I'm so nervous that if anyone ever <laughs> so, <laughs> looks I, at my I search swear, history, one day, one day, we're just going to get like, a knock at the read door. It. <laughs> oh. Well, if ingested in large amounts, the first thing that the sweet-tasting liquid does is it kind of mimics alcohol at first. It affects your central nervous system, slowing it down, replicating drunkenness. However, antifreeze gets absorbed quickly into the body. From there, it forms chemicals that crystallize, and those crystals collect in your kidneys, causing renal failure. Antifreeze could also change the acid-base balance of your body, which affect your heart and your lungs. So a person who suffers antifreeze ingestion would suffer from severe abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and convulsions. It seemed to detectives like this had been what happened to Scott. He had chosen this to be the way that he died. Or did he? Well, what they're thinking is maybe the day before had been, like, the the day had been too much for him. He had survived cancer for a family that he thought was going to be his again. But then he shows up there to exchange Christmas presents with his own children on December 28th, three days later. And he's kind of feeling like an outsider. Um, It's totally established that Nancy and Sherelle are together. Like, was this his final, like, what was I fighting for? And I'm giving up. You you know, even though for the average person, that would be more than enough to push someone over the edge. Because, I mean, you're losing everything. I don't think this about him. Because you are not going to deal with all of your wife's bs for lack of a better term because it's been bs for 20 something years um survive cancer when you were told you were gonna die and let's not forget he was from all accounts that you've said so far you know he was at least he was a thoughtful dad bringing gay around was something that was a good thing no- noticing or realizing that his kids liked her and, and it would bring a, a some sort of stability to those kids when he had them that shows intent to be good so I I think I wanted to say, as of this moment, a good dad. So I don't even think that he would take his own life. And as I'm sitting here listening to this, there's a lot of red flags for me. I'll shorten it up by just saying, at the moment, the door being open, the wine being on the table, his glass being empty, the note being very um, messy, like it was written very poorly, and then him being half naked, so to speak, or ready for bed, it makes me almost feel like somebody was there um, to say hello and to talk. And then one thing led into another, and he thought it was going to lead to something. And then maybe something happened to him. You get what I'm saying? I like, get what you're saying. Like maybe, sh- sh- I'm sorry, Sherelle Shur- came over, and then something kind of happened from there. But anyway, I don't think he would take his own life. Okay. So as of this moment, I don't believe. So you're in the I think boat it's foul play. that it was not a suicide. It was foul play. Yes. Okay. So, of course, because they're opening an investigation, the detectives are going to speak to family and friends to get, you know, the full report. Like, they're not just going to close it so easily. They are going to do a few interviews. Okay. And suicide is a difficult topic. 
It is often a shock to loved ones because we may not know that the people in our lives are struggling in silence until it's too late. And the case of Scott Dell was no exception to that. Everyone said that they didn't think that Scott was that person. They all thought that he was happy because his cancer was in remission. It was a shock to them. Sherelle, however, shared something with the officer working on the case. She said that the night that this all must have happened, that she received several phone calls from Scott. That, in fact, the two of them had talked off and on for nine hours. She took all of the calls because she thought it was the right thing to do, because this is technically still her husband, the father of her children, and that during each phone call, he was seeming more and more intoxicated. Now, this is something that's interesting because he is drinking wine, but we do know that there's antifreeze in the wine and that the symptoms do replicate the drunkenness because of the effects on the nervous system. So she was saying as the phone calls were coming through, he was more and more intoxicated. Okay. She said that they had had very long conversations um, that went on until 4 a.m. And that she had just been exhausted from listening to hours of Scott trying to talk her into them being together again. So finally, she felt like she just had to, like she was trying to be nice to him. But he wasn't kind of getting it that she had completely moved on. He couldn't let go of their family. So she said at the end of the conversation, she finally just had to come out and say it. She told him, I've made my final decision about our marriage and I don't want to be together. We're never going to get back together. I'm sorry, but I'm in love with Nancy. And she said that was the last thing that she said to him at 4 a.m. So, you know, now they're kind of thinking, okay, was he drinking and talking to her? And then when she said this, was that when he then was go that's when he put the antifreeze in the wine and then he was headed up because he was going to just lay in bed and pass away but couldn't get there yeah i i see how at first glance maybe that is what happened but i feel like there could be more here i also want to say i think it's 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 some a lot of people forget that you know sometimes unhappy people can have happy moments it's not all just one straight line you know what i'm saying yes and I, and I think that that's an, like we have to consider everything here. It's just so quick for someone to just say, he, you know, he, he died, you know, he killed himself. Right. You know. So Sherelle also shares with the officer that during the very intense phone conversation, Scott had confided something in her. His cancer had come back. OK. So he had not told anyone And he was saying that if she wasn't going to be in his life, that maybe he was just too tired to fight it again. That's sad. And that kind of changes everything. It does. So it was sad, heartbreaking, but it made sense. And the investigation was closed. The unattended death of Scott Dell was ruled a suicide. And for the next year and few months, all was quiet with the Dell family. The children and Sherelle had begun to heal from the tragedy. But in March of 1997, the chaos came back. 
at 4.44 p.m. Detective Ken Lepper was just about to head home after a long shift when he was stopped at the door of the Killaloo detachment of the OPP. Standing in front of him was 39-year-old Nancy Fillmore. She seemed frantic and asked to speak with the detective right away. Because the woman seemed so distressed, and he knew that it would take a while to be seen because of the shift changes that were taking place, Detective Leppard decided that he would help her. This would be a very fateful decision, because now (laughs) it is his case. Yeah. I don't think he knew what he was getting into. Once Nancy was sitting down with him at his desk, she began her complaint. She said that she was there to talk about Sherelle Dell. She explained that the 42-year-old woman was a liar and a criminal. Now, the detective vaguely knew who Sherelle was because Killaloo was such a small village. She was the widow with three children. And he knew that the community always kind of did what they could to help her and the family because of the tragedy that had befallen them. Well, Nancy was certainly not painting her as someone who needed help in any way. Nancy continued her accusations. She said that Sherelle had been committing fraud, that she opened several lines of credit under fake names, and that she also reported break-ins that never happened so she could get the insurance money. Detective Leppert told Nancy that these were both serious accusations and serious crimes. So, does she have any physical evidence that they took place? And that was when Nancy began to squirm a little bit. No, she said. She didn't have any physical proof. But Sherelle had told her that she had done these things. He asked Nancy just how she knew Sherelle and why was Sherelle spilling all of these secrets to her. Well, Nancy admitted that the two of them had been partners for a very long time but had recently split up. And that was when a light bulb kind of went off in this detective's head. Like, maybe this is just a really bad breakup and she's trying to get her ex in trouble. It has happened before. This could be just a case of a scorned lover, especially because of how frantic she had been when he first met her. He had assumed that Sherelle had done something to make Nancy angry And now here she was coming to make a police report because this fraud wasn't something that was like an immediate needed immediate attention. Like it's not a crime that's taking place right now. It's something that had happened. So there's a reason why this woman had been so worked up. So he was kind of trying to like read her. But still, as is his job, Detective Leppert wrote everything down that Nancy had told him. While he was taking down all of this information, Nancy admitted that she and Sherelle were part of an ongoing legal battle where she was suing for stolen money and her personal belongings. She said that this all stemmed from the fact that she had been the one to put the down payment on the house in on Pine Street and that while they were living there, she had been paying for most of the bills. And one day she came home to find that Sherelle had moved someone else in the house. What? A man named Chris Mickle. Who's that guy? Her new boyfriend. Oh, there's something wrong. 
here. There's something very wrong. Yes. And not only was Chris Mickle now living in the house, Sherelle was kicking Nancy out and not even letting her get her personal things from the house. So that's why there was like a civil suit taking place because Nancy is saying, well, I put 6000 towards the down payment of this house. And if I can't even live there any longer or I'm not getting half the equity, well, then I at least need my 6000 back. I mean, that's fair. And I need my personal property back. Yeah. So it, there was a lot going on. And Nancy did ask, you know, I have this civil suit going on. I obviously want to help you with the fraud investigation into Sherelle. But at the same time, could you go back with me to the house so I can get my property back in a safe way? And that is kind of what happens during these disputes where if there's like a a situation where two people were living together and then one person has to go and get their property, but it's a contentious situation, it is smart to also have law enforcement there. Absolutely. So that's why she was asking Detective Leppert if he would go. So he agrees to go with her. Not only did he want this whole thing to go down civilly, but he also figured that it would give him a chance to speak with Sherelle and he could figure out the fraud angle of this investigation. So he agreed to meet her at a specific time the following day outside of the home on Mill Street. As soon as Sherelle answered the door for the detective and Nancy, the ex-couple began to fight. Sherelle was talking over Nancy, who was asking for her things back, and telling the detective that Nancy was crazy and not to listen to anything she has to say. Eventually, Detective Leppert calmed both women down and asked Sherelle to bring Nancy any of the property that still may be at the house. Sherelle said fine and left the two on the front doorstep in a huff. When she came back, she threw a garbage bag at Nancy, which the detective assumed was filled with some of her personal belongings. So he tells Nancy, you know, you should open it, see if what you've requested is in there. So she opens the bag. And when she opens the bag, she did find some of her things, but she found that her things were also mixed in with emptied cans of wet dog food and rancid garbage. Her stuff was destroyed. That is messed up. Yeah. And and you know what? Now we can see what she's really all about here. And I think that Gay probably realized even though it was three years in, but she noticed early. She said she was staying for the kids. Right. But I think she realized early that this person uses people. She uses every single person. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, Scott was on the receiving end of this for 20-something years. Right. So every single person within this woman's life, she uses in some form or another. And then moves on when she's done. When she's ready. Yeah. Yeah. So the destroyed stuff infuriates Nancy. And she screamed at Sherelle, how could you do this to me? I loved you. And Sherelle just laughs back at Nancy's pain. So Nancy turns to the detective and said, I have something to share with you. Sherelle's husband did not die by suicide. She murdered him. What? (laughs) What? Right there on the spot. Yeah, right there on the spot. (laughs) Oh, my God. In front of everybody. In front of the detective. Oh, my God. 
So Sherelle did the only thing I guess you can do when you're accused of murder in front of a detective. And she denied it. No, I didn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, crazy. Detective Lepper thanked Sherelle for her time. And when she shut the door, he said to Nancy Fillmore, we're going to go back to the station. You need to elaborate on what you just said to me. We'll make a formal report. And I hope you're telling the truth. So now this fraud charge that he thought he would be checking out just became a murder investigation. Just one thing, though, that I just want to point out real quick before you continue the story. By her saying that, could, I'm not saying, you know, will, but could implicate her because she had knowledge that her girlfriend at the time was a a murderer. Well, we will get there. So for her to just come out and say that. Well, she's pissed. I mean, she's pissed. But I'm just saying that is major. That is major. You're implicating yourself, number one. Number two, this whole thing just blew the hell up. Yes. This is crazy. This is actually crazy. Okay. So back at the station, Nancy agreed to tell everything she knew to Detective Leppert and a female officer. This interview was filmed. The story that she had to tell was shocking. She said that Sherelle hated Scott and that her only goal had been to get full custody of the children so she could collect social assistance checks and get his money and the farmhouse. She said that back before she was in the picture, when Sherelle had still been dating Gay, that Sherelle had asked Scott for a divorce. However, when she found out he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, she stopped the divorce process because she knew Scott was going to die. If they divorced, she would only get half of his things. But if she were his widow, she would get it all. That is so cold. I can't even believe it. That someone can be that disturbed and, and cold. She... And Nancy will go on, and and I'll get into it a little bit further, but Nancy said that Sherelle kind of basically strung Scott along throughout his entire cancer treatment, survived this, and we'll get together, so he didn't go through with the divorce proceedings, um, because he was thinking, like, if I do die, I kind of want everything that I have to go to my children in a trust situation, but she's kind of stringing him along thinking if you survive we'll be together so he doesn't do that (laughs) how sick how sick i know oh my god so nancy explained that this is why she had put the six thousand down on the house on mill street when Sherelle had filled out the mortgage application she thought that she would be inheriting things from scott And that's why she didn't have her $3,000 to put down because she thought Scott was going to die and she was going to inherit the farmhouse because that's what she told the the lender. Right. I'm going to be inheriting things soon. So that will be my financial security. So she was banking on him dying. Correct. So that we, oh, wow. Okay. So when he started to get better with the treatments, she asked Nancy to loan her her share of the money. Nancy also explained that there had been a long and brutal custody battle over the kids 
And the reason why Nancy always hated Scott so much was because Sherelle had made her hate him. She had said horrible things about Scott. And now she was wondering, now that she's on the receiving end of this side of Sherelle, if anything she said was true. Most likely not. Well, Detective Leopard asked Nancy what she meant by horrible things. What horrible things had Sherelle said that Scott did? And she said that she told her that Scott had physically and sexually abused their three children and the kids that they fostered. Stop. And that's why they were terminated as foster parents. You have got to be kidding me. Nope. She accused him of the thing that he had worked his whole life to help her recover from. You have got to be kidding me. I am so mad right now. How? This poor man. I know. Everything that this man has gone through with her, supported her, unconditional love and support, even when things were really grim between the two of them. Yep. Still had hope that they could re- uh, rekindle their uh, marriage. And all that she was doing was being with other people, yep. um, stringing him along to gain what he possesses. I, I, I just, I, I can't. I think this is the depths of depravity. Accuse him of the worst shit. Yeah. It's like spitting on his grave. I, that wow. she might have put him in. That that she might have put him, yes. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. And we're like only halfway through this story. And you know what? And you know what? We're we're f- so focused right now on these two because it's it's insane or these three. It's insane. Mm-hmm. But these poor kids. Yeah. That's something that j- is going under the radar right now because it's so insane what's taking place. Well, I think what is so good is that they were very protected in um because obviously this case is 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 very well known many things happen going forward as well and the kids identities have been protected okay well, so that's i good. think that's why we don't hear too much i mean, later on in life um Sherelle's daughter kind of comes forward and says some things but um I think that it's nice that the kids were protected and we don't know. Yes, I think they had a traumatic, horrific childhood, which I hope that they're healing from. But it's it's nice that they were kept out of the public eye. Yeah, I agree. Nancy went on to say that Sherelle had gotten comfortable with the idea that everything Scott had would be hers when he got sick. And when he survived, she didn't celebrate the fact that the father of her children would be alive to see them grow up. She plotted his demise. Sick. I I still can't get over this. this, Neither can I. You don't understand. While I was researching and writing this (laughs) for the past week, I've been like, oh, my God, I can't wait to tell John this story. Like, I wanted to talk to you about it as I was doing the research. (laughs) I I, I just, I I mean, look, I had a feeling that there was foul play involved. But still, I mean, the the amount of BS that she made this man endure is horrible. John, it's not over. I I know. Buckle up. Get ready. There's (laughs) more. I'm trying. We're halfway through. Oh, my God. Okay. So this is the part of the interview where Nancy started to break down. She got highly emotional and was sobbing. The next part, she said, 
was something that she was going to have to live with for the rest of her life. And it was something that she deeply regretted. She said that Sherelle had pumped her head full of all of these horrific things about Scott and how much better their lives were going to be if he was dead and how the kids would finally be at peace. So she agreed to help methodically plan his murder. What? Yes. What? So she convinced it. She convinced her to help her. Yes. Why? Listen, we have to get a little bit into the backstory of Nancy here. And I think this will help you understand her emotionality in this. Nancy was alone for a very long time. She was a lonely woman who was putting out ads in the newspaper to find companionship. And Sherelle responded to her. And Sherelle is this attractive, vivacious woman who was giving her all this attention and providing for her a life she never thought she was going to have. A loving relationship because she could be very charismatic and and think that that's what she was going to provide for you. Uh, A ready-made family with three children. Same thing that, that attracted Gay to her. And when Sherelle starts saying, my husband used to abuse me, And does abuse the children. And that's why I had to leave. And that's why I want to get him away from the kids. But he won't leave us alone. Nancy goes into protection mode. To protect this life that she now has. Which she's grateful for. And this woman that she loves. What a con artist. Yeah. Because that's what she's doing. She's weaving her web. And and taking uh, advantage of, of, of vulnerable people. Yeah. It's so disgusting. And I have to say, I've watched a lot of, I guess you could say, like, confessions or interrogation videos. And Nancy Fillmore, in this video that I watched, was truly, truly remorseful for what had happened. I think all of a sudden the veil was lifted. Once she got kicked out of the house, the, like, spell that Sherelle had on her was lifted. Well, she was fooled. She was fooled. By, yeah. by what she was being told and everything. And I get that. But I just, you know, sometimes it's like you wonder if common sense does kick in to be like, no, I'm not going to murder somebody. I'm not going to help you. Well, yeah, you would think that. But I think. mean, look at the crazy situation she's in. That's true. So Nancy explained that at this time, her and Scott fought all the time because she wanted him out of her girlfriend's life. But Sherelle had been stringing Scott along through the battle with cancer, telling him that if he survived, they would be together. So he was definitely getting mixed signals. But the whole time Sherelle was doing this, she was lying. She just knew it was what he wanted to hear. And after months of Scott being in remission from his cancer, the two women put their plan into action. Sherelle invited Scott over on December 28, 1995. She told him that she wanted him to come over the house so she could be there, too, while he watched their children open up the Christmas presents that he had gotten for them. And she let him know that she got him something special as well. While he was at the house, Sherelle asked Scott to go off with her so the two could speak privately. Now, normally, Nancy would have objected to something like this, but Nancy knew the plan. So Nancy said that the plan had been 
for Sherelle to tell him the following. This is really going to get you mad. I, I know. I'm, tr- I'm bracing myself for it. I really am. <laughs> so Sherelle told him that she wanted to get him something special, a special gift. But what the gift was wasn't necessarily that special, but the meaning behind it was. She had told her husband, who had survived cancer, to bring his family back together, that she had had a dream. And in it, the two of them were sitting together, drinking a bottle of wine, and making plans to get back together and discuss what they were going to do with the rest of their lives. And that's why she got him a bottle of wine for Christmas. So Scott had been so happy. This is what he always wanted. And Sherelle went on to tell him, I want you to go home tonight, put on our song, and give me a call, and we'll talk about the future. (gasps) No. The whole thing's staged. Everything is staged. We, I'm going to get into it. Okay. Don't you worry. But this woman is very devious. She's a criminal mastermind. I mean, so far, yeah. So, as we know, Scott did give Shirelle a call. He spoke with her for hours. And while she kept him on the phone, she wasn't listening to see what he was saying about them getting back together and being a family again. She was listening for all the signs of the antifreeze poisoning kicking in. And she had been the one to say, as they were talking on the phone... As you're sitting there picturing us together, jot down notes. So she is, this whole thing's like an experiment well, to her. And she wanted to, that was the suicide note. So that would look like suicide notes. Yeah. So he essentially was writing his own suicide notes without knowing that's what she was planning on him doing. Oh man, this is breaking my heart. And she listened to it happen. Right. And obviously, um, which I'm sure, as the phone calls went on, he was worse and worse because it was starting to take effect. Yeah. Put on our song. Oh, my God. Isn't that terrible? I I can't. Okay, why do you do this to me? I don't know. Why do you do this to me? And you know what? This is very, very sad because (sighs) Scott fought really hard for his life. And it's very difficult when you have cancer of the throat and the tongue especially like he had. Um, he was nervous about the fact that he might have to get surgery, which would like involve removing parts of his tongue, meaning he may never speak again. So he opted for parts of, um, the treatment that would make him be, um, able to speak to his kids still and, and, and live a future with his wife. Like he made all of these decisions based on the fact that he thought he was going to be with her again. And this was her, right before she was about to kill him, giving him that last hope and then stealing it from him. So sad. And that is what brings me to her final act of cruelty against him. As she listened in for the whole night and was listening for the signs of the poisoning to take effect, she cut him one final time. She told him that she no longer wanted to be with him and that she loved Nancy. Wow. And that was what he 
he heard. So he couldn't even die with the the thought. Like he might think, oh, I'm just getting sick. And he didn't really understand why he was dying because she was poisoning him. But at least he could have thought this is what I could have. But she took that from him even then in his dying moments. See, people like that, with what has been done here, it's so horrific. And it literally could bring me to tears. I know. It is so sad to watch somebody that has gone through everything like this and have to deal with this. Right? It's It's emotional torture. Sad. I I don't even I have no words because that's how much this has got me messed up. Wow. Well, Detective Leper felt the same way. He was shocked at this story. But of course, he has to look at it through an investigative lens. This is still only hearsay, though. Like, how do you know this happened? How do you know that was said? And again, Nancy got very emotional And she said she was ready to tell everything. She was ready to face the repercussions for what she did. She wanted to take responsibility for her part in this, but she wanted what happened to Scott to be known because now she's understanding how evil Sherelle was because now she's thinking, okay, what if she was lying? So she said, I know what Scott was saying during the phone conversation that he was having with Sherelle during his last hours because I was listening in from the other phone in the house. So so she heard it all. Wow. Oh, my God. She said at the end of the conversation, Scott's speech was extremely slurred and he didn't seem okay. He seemed as if he was in pain. Before Sherelle hung up the phone at 4 a.m., Nancy said that he was saying strange things. Like he kept saying to Sherelle, I know you're here with me. I can see your angel spirit. And then right before she hung up the phone at 4 a.m., Sherelle said to him, yes, my angel spirit is there. My angel spirit will take you to heaven. And with that, she ended the nine-hour phone conversation. And Nancy now in the interview is crying hysterically. She's sobbing. She said, we killed a man and I have to live with that for the rest of my life. The planning is insane, though. To gift him this wine and to ensure that he was going to drink it right away by saying, drink it tonight and call me. So now she could listen into everything that was happening so she could kind of gauge whether or not it was working or not. Okay. Um, Another thing was that she was saying, write notes about what you're thinking about us. Okay. So now that's the suicide note. It's so sad. Yeah. He, she knew that he would try to write something because he was, she was pushing him along to do these things. Correct. And that was what detective, Leopard wanted to get to next. Like, okay, what are the logistics of this? How was this done? And Nancy said that she had been the one to buy the wine, a 1.5 liter bottle. So we're talking about like the huge bottles of wine. And she also retrieved the antifreeze that she had from her car from the garage. So she said that Sherelle was the one to put the antifreeze in the wine. And... Just when you think it couldn't get worse. It does? 
the reason why she put the antifreeze in the wine was because she knew that from the radiation treatment, Scott had lost his sense of taste. So he would never be able to tell that there was something in his wine. The planning is so sophisticated and every step has been like super calculated because obviously a a random person trying to kill him wouldn't know that. Obviously, she knows that. She's taking advantage of that. Every single part has been done to take advantage of him fully. This is like the most messed up thing I've ever... The only thing I have a question about is why were the doors open? Because he probably just... Like they were unlocked. Got home and, and just didn't lock the door. Like it's probably it's it's one of those things that happen in in a crime scene that is so careless and not a part of it, but then becomes such a big deal. I understand. I, I think this is very interesting because uh, through all our cases, I don't think we've ever come across someone who has literally been able to manipulate somebody to the point where they can kill somebody and do it over a phone and get them to write notes and make it look like suicide. Yeah. That is insane that that could take place, right? We've never seen that before. We've never seen somebody be able to control she somebody and let and control so many people. Yeah, yeah. Just wait. This is not over. Okay. Okay. So Nancy said that while Sherelle was actually mixing the antifreeze into the wine and then wrapping it up as a present, she began to freak out and talk to her about like. I don't think I'm able to do this. And Sherelle told her to shut up and to just go with it, that things would be better this way. And that's when she threatened her. And if you ever tell anyone, like, you're going to go down for this because people know how much you hated him. All I could say is that I was going to get back with him and then you decided to kill him. So her insurance policy was the blackmail. Yeah, it was to blame Nancy. Oof. And again, now Nancy felt bad about hating Scott because she felt like Sherelle had lied to her about everything that he did. And she just wanted her to help her in this plot to kill him. And it was kind of like scary because she's thinking, okay, well, am I just I think in that moment, she realized she's just as disposable as Scott is to her. So she said, you know, I should have seen the signs like the fact that Gay became friends with Scott once she broke up with Sherelle should have been a sign to me that Scott wasn't doing these terrible things to the kids. But I was so blinded by my love for Sherelle. And again, this is a wild story. But now they have someone to testify against Sherelle. But the detective made it clear to Nancy that they would really only ever be able to get a conviction if she agreed to testify against Sherelle. Like, he's like, you can't backtrack on this because it's going to take us a while to get the physical evidence to prove what you're saying. But your testimony is going to be the only thing that locks this woman up. And Nancy made it very clear that her intentions were to testify and also face the consequences of her actions. At least somebody is. Yeah. So, again, like I said, she was extremely remorseful and said um, she didn't do this for a deal. She never asked for a deal. Okay. Did they give her one? She said this is what – well, we'll get into that. Okay. She said this is what I did, and I'm going to help, you know, bring some – I guess, closure to his children and his family. Some justice. Yeah. And three days after the tape confession, 
on March 21, 1997, the investigation into Sherelle Dell began. Detective Leppard began working with the detective that had originally been assigned what had been Scott's suicide, and the two of them began looking into the past of the couple. Sherelle did not have a criminal record, but she certainly did have a lot of reports, filings, and rulings dealing with the court, like the family court, dealing back with her initial split up with Scott. And that was in regards to the custody dispute. Okay, so some of this is going to get graphic. And, you know, it involves um, sexual abuse towards children. Um, these are not things, these were things that were actually disproven. So they never took place. But I think it would be a disservice to not express what she accused Scott of doing in an open court in a small village where everyone heard this and thought this of this man. I, I think you're right. Right. So what I'm saying did not happen, but I feel like I have to list it. I just want to give that disclaim. Well, yeah, because it's going to show how much more of a monster she is. Yeah. So this took a while for the detectives at the OPP to get together. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to summarize it for you with the help of an amazing article from the Ottawa Citizen. So initially, in court documents, they found that Sherelle had lied several times. In one instance, she claimed to have a degree in psychology, which was not true. And in another, she said she had bought the farmhouse that Scott was living in with money that she had inherited from her grandmother, which was also found not to be true. And she also made the following accusations that were all proven to be false by a court of law. So these are the allegations that she made. First, that Scott assaulted her on July 18, 1992. This is when she supposedly got away, got back from her time away with Gay. Like that was that excursion. That Scott had severely assaulted a developmentally delayed 13-year-old boy who was their foster child at the time. She claimed that he had split the boy's lip and blackened his eye. And this ended the family being able to be foster parents any longer. And um, that was deemed to be false. There was no injuries on the boy. Five days after that, she claimed that Scott had been rough with their oldest daughter and sexually improper with another. The report on this was that the findings of the court were that Sherelle had coached her daughters to say that Scott had done those things. And mind you, while she's making all these wild claims, and trust me, they get worse, um, she's also telling everyone in the village of under 700 people that this was happening. So people truly thought that Scott was a monster. And it gets worse. In September of 1992, she made further allegations that Scott raped one of his daughters and ejaculated on another one of his daughters. These allegations were also proven to be untrue. I can't even believe this. I, I also, listen, I understand that he may love this woman, but how after she accused you of this, would you even want to be with her again? Like, I understand that she had trauma in her past, but um, this is beyond crossing lines here. I, I don't really know. I, I think that I, I'm trying to be loose with, like, Loosely, I'm speaking about this. Like, did he just think that maybe he could fix her? There are people out there that are that that they do gravitate towards people who 
could use some help and some guidance in their life and maybe is that was he one of those kind of people where he thought he could change her and mold her into something that he wanted that's very true and what happens in those situations is that sometimes people's self-worth and self-esteem get intertwined with how can i fix this person it happens. I mean, that's a possibility. But yes, on the surface, you're like, why would anyone stay after accusations like that? Right. That would destroy your character and your credibility. And your relationship with your children. Yeah. Uh, yes. And then, like, think about this. Just, um, I'm kind of just putting it out there. Imagine if there was no murder to be talked about here, but those children were spending more time with their mother, and their mother was saying these awful things happened to them. Now these kids grew up thinking that their dad's some sort of crazy child predator yeah. that p- preyed on them. Like, what? You're, like, the, think about what you're saying. Like, if he didn't die, th- these kids would think that he is capable and has have done things of that nature. You, There is no recovery from that. Right. So it's just really crazy that this is it happening. Is. But I'm glad in a in a court of law we're disproving all these wild and outlandish, uh, you know, rumors or, or, or right. whatever you want to call them. Wow. Then in early 1993, Sherelle filed for divorce. Something, as we know, she rescinds as soon as she finds out about Scott being diagnosed with terminal cancer. But when she was filing, she requested that Scott pay her. a month in child support and that he give up the farmhouse to her. That's a lot of money for 1993. Oh, yeah. She also reclaimed the physical and sexual abuse, citing that that was why she wanted full custody. The judge who ruled over this was upset, to say the least. He had this to say about Sherelle. You, meaning Sherelle, have an appalling lack of consideration and concern for the interests of the children in the prosecution of your design to destroy the respondent's reputation, meaning her, Scott, by repetitive and unfounded allegations of sexual impropriety to mask or mitigate your own inadequacies. There is no question that the various agencies and institutions involved have been besieged by unnecessary and excessive unwarranted complaints. That's good the judge said that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, as as I'm sitting here listening to these crazy claims, I want to be careful with how I approach this because I don't know whether it to be fact or not because we, we talked about it earlier. Was it true about her grandfather? Um. From the way she acted out as a child and her drug use and alcohol abuse, it seemed like, yes. Okay. That that was something that was true, but... Um, I'm just trying to say we that... We don't know. Yeah. We don't yeah. know. I, I her, her father had some very questionable things to say about her growing up as a child. Like, she was very unpredictable. Um she was someone who was a liar, but her sexual promiscuity and things like that, like that does kind of tie in with someone who would have suffered from sexual abuse as a child. Yeah. So we don't know. I'm just trying to say that we have to call into question her credibility going all the way back to when she first met Scott. Yeah. Because could that have been her way of ro- roping him into him feeling sorry for her by making these crazy claims? 
Um, and like I said, I don't want to dismiss if she truly was. I mean, you know, you know how you, we feel about that. But well, I would say everything with this woman can be called into question because of her actions and what she has done. Yeah. Because you would think that someone that was a victim of childhood sexual abuse, of course, would want to end the cycle and would not want that to happen to their own children. But she, in a way, is kind of making it happen to her children if they have to recall these events that didn't take place. Like, why would you even put those thoughts or those memories in your children's heads? And then telling them to lie about it. you know what it's like to have actually suffered from that. Correct. And that's yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And then you're you're telling your children to lie about inappropriate touching that never happened. Yeah. So that, that to me, I like you said, how, how could that be then? You know, but. But I think she's, um, I think she has a lot wrong with her. Yeah. I don't think we're talking about a sane person here. Agreed. So also side note here, Gay would later tell Scott that during this time, like when the trials were going down, that Sherelle had made a voodoo doll of him and would put ropes and ribbons around it and stab it with pins. What? Yeah. Okay. So this does add a layer of drama and craziness to the case. But looking back on the investigation, Detective Leppert said that what they had read in the family court hearings was necessary to the investigation because it proved that Sherelle Dell was a liar and that she had done horrible things to Scott because in the back of their heads, they were nervous. They were nervous that Nancy was just a jilted lover. And this kind of helped them understand the woman and that, you know, there was some stuff going on with her. There were also numerous social workers that Um, kind of saw her with her interactions with the children and the family. And they said that the kids, her interactions with the kids were not good and that she was a narcissist. So while they were knee deep in the investigation into Sherelle, something wild happens. They get a phone call from none other than Sherelle. She seemed frantic and she said that she needed someone to come to her house on Mill Street right away that Nancy was crazy and trying to hurt her. She sounded terrified. So the two detectives rushed to her home. And when they got there, they expected to see a fight or a confrontation happening. But when they arrived, Nancy was nowhere to be seen, and nothing was really happening. Sherelle waited for them by her front door, quietly. Sherelle showed them a puddle of what seemed to be an oil-like substance on her front porch. She said that she knew this was from Nancy. She said that she believed that she had spilled gasoline on her house because she was trying to intimidate her, like she was trying to start a fire. She had felt it was threatening. The detectives searched all around the property, but they were unable to find evidence that anyone had tried to start a fire. But when the detective tried to tell Sherelle that they were unable to tell whether or not someone had been trying to start a fire on her doorstep or not, um, she said she had a lot of other things to say to them. She let them know that that witch, she was referring to Nancy, had her debit card and that she had been stealing money. She claimed now that Nancy was in fact um, the one who was a fraudster and that she, Sherelle, had to cancel accounts in order to stop having money stolen from her. So as you can imagine, the detectives were like, oh, Something else to investigate. Why can't we just like 
stay on track of this hot mess investigation? Like, why do we always have to, like, investigate other offshoots of things? (laughs) So they asked Sherelle for any paperwork that she had that proved any of this. And just when, you know, detectives were, they had, like, this minor thought in their head, like, could there be another side to the story? Um, Could Nancy be lying to us? Sherelle goes off the deep end and proves that she's out of her mind and she hits on them in an embarrassing, cringy way that makes the detectives believe that she's trying to use her sex appeal to get them on her side. Like she was saying things like, oh, people were asking who the like hot detectives were that were over here. And like she was trying to be flirty with them. And they were like, we're going to go. Um, so before... They go any further because essentially their investigation relies completely on Nancy's testimony. So they have to make sure that their key witness is clean in the investigation. So they want to investigate all of these claims that Sherelle was making regarding Nancy and her um, debit card. They found that Sherelle had lied. Nancy had not attempted to take any money from her. None of her accounts had been frozen or canceled because of her or any suspicious activity that happened. In fact, no suspicious activity had taken place. So now they were back on track. They were trying to substantiate the claims that Sherelle had killed her husband. One name that the detectives kept seeing pop up again and again was the name of Gay Doherty. Not only had she had physical and romantic relationship with Sherelle, but she also had a friendship with Scott and had been the one to find him dead. So they were like, we got to talk to this woman. So Gay Doherty no longer lived in the area, and they actually had to track her down in order to speak with her, something that was hard to do because she lived two hours away in Quebec. When they found her, she said that she had moved so far away because she had completely wanted to get away from this situation. And in a way, she was in hiding. Why? Well, and the look on the detective's face said it all. Like, isn't that a bit extreme? And she was like, no, it's not extreme at all. And she explained why she felt like she had to go into hiding. She said that she had always been able to see the children when Scott had them at his house. But after he died, obviously those visits stopped. She said that she would try and connect with Sherelle or Nancy to try and arrange a time where she couldn't meet up with the children or just say hi, play with them for a little bit. And as you can imagine, this is a bit of a complicated relationship. And both Sherelle and Nancy did not want Gay to see the children. She, they didn't want Gay in their life at all. Like, you're an ex-girlfriend, go away. Sherelle claimed that the kids always acted weird when they would come back from seeing Gay, so she wanted to put an end to her seeing them. Now, think of this what you will, but Gay was fighting for the ability to see children who were very fond of her. Um, She was also of the belief that Scott did not kill himself, and she had been very emotional about finding him. And Sherelle most likely allegedly, did not want Gay to share those feelings or beliefs with the kids. That's probably why she didn't want her to see them. Well, it would go against her her plans. Right. 
Well, okay, so let's go back to the reason why she was in hiding. She said a few months after Scott's death, she had awoken in the middle of the night to flames in her home. She had a pitcher of water on her bedside table. So thinking fast, she soaked her blanket in water, wrapped it around herself, and ran through the flames that were larger than she was until she was able to get out of her house. She ran to safety at the end of her driveway, and when she looked back, her entire house had been engulfed in flames. If she had not woken up, she would have died. If there wasn't water beside her, she also would have died. That's crazy. Her whole house was gone. And because she had run all the way to the end of her driveway, um, she she really was going to, because now obviously she doesn't have a phone, so she was going to like go to a neighbor's house to call the fire department. But as she was leaving her driveway, she passes her mailbox. And on her mailbox, she finds a note taped to it. Okay. And the note says, stay away from Sherelle's kids or you'll be hurt. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't Sherelle accuse um, Nancy, Nancy of trying to set a blaze to the house? Yeah. So could there be some truth in that? We don't know who set the fire at Gay's house still to this day. Or could there be truth in the fact that, you know, Sherelle's saying that Nancy did it, but she really she's did the one that actually used gas to light someone's house on fire. Well, either way, it's... It's a murder attempt. It is. And it was enough to scare her. She's like, I got the message loud and clear. I moved two hours away. I don't want to die. Okay. Isn't that wild? That is wild. I would want to stay hidden too. She could have very easily <laughs> died in that fire. Oh, yeah. Now, at first they had been skeptics when she said she was in hiding. But when they verified the fire and the note, um, they were like, wow, that is serious. So next, the detectives wanted to speak with the officer that had taken Sherelle's statement after Scott had been found dead in his home. Remember, they questioned all of his loved ones as part of the investigation into whether or not it was a suicide because it had been an unattended death. The officer said that he found the interview to be interesting because he had not been able to ask any questions. Instead, Sherelle just kept talking and talking, and because of that, he had just written a lot of notes. So he wrote down things that he thought was interesting or things that he thought um, were just kind of odd that she was saying. Sherelle told the officer that for nine hours off and on, she had taken phone calls from her estranged husband. She said that he had been intoxicated, or at least she believed him to be intoxicated. Now it was kind of clear that it was signs of antifreeze poisoning taking effect. She said that when he talked to her, he spoke about how he had been racked with guilt over how he had abused her and the children. Those were probably lies. Well, yes, she's, she's trying to, even in his death, make him out to be a monster and validate herself as being a truth teller. But what I like right now is they could be... They don't even need to ask her questions. She might even just dig her own hole on accident. Well, this is so. Yeah. Oh, she's still talking. So she said during the phone call, she told Scott that she wanted to move on with her life and that she forgave him for everything that he did to her and the children. Sherelle went on to say that she was not surprised that he had killed himself because he admitted to her that he that had cancer that came back and he didn't want to have to suffer through more treatments and he knew he didn't have long to live. 
She said that that made him deeply depressed, but also that he swore her to secrecy to not tell anybody. Sherelle claimed that Scott said he wanted to just die on his own by his own means, and he didn't want her to tell anyone about this either. She said something that was oddly specific and stuck with the officer, so he wrote the numbers down. She had said the last time the cancer treatments had really kicked his ass, that he had become a shell of the man he once was. He used to be 250 pounds, and then he withered down to 130 pounds. The officer had known that his weight was more than that at his time of death. So he thought it was odd that she said 130 when he knew that he'd weighed significantly more than that. So that's why he wrote the numbers down specifically. Next, others close to Scott were interviewed and their account of Scott was now seen in a new light. When someone dies by suicide, it's always or often said, I didn't see it coming. I can't imagine why. But with Scott, all of these things might have actually been true. People said that he they always believed that Scott had not killed himself. Um, they believed him to have a zest for life. He was an excellent father and husband. I mean, look at all that he went through. And really, at the end of the day, it hadn't been his fault the marriage fell apart. Even after Sherelle had done everything she did to him, he understood that it was because of deep trauma that had taken place, and he was never angry with her. They said that he had fought hard to live, and he wouldn't have done that for nothing. Next were the doctors. Had what Sherelle said in that interview been true? Had the cancer come back? According to Scott's medical records, that was not the case. The cancer had not come back. He was still in remission. And again, Sherelle had lied. Crazy. That is crazy. Wait, so she was she thought he weighed a certain amount, right? She was trying to say like he the cancer came back. It really like ravished him the first time. He basically lost eighty pounds. Okay, but the number was was it was significantly off. Yeah, like he was no longer one hundred and thirty pounds anymore. He'd been in remission for a couple of months, so. Maybe at one point he'd been down to 130, but he had gained weight since then. Okay. Because, I, I mean, I might be reading too much into it, but I think I, I, what I was thinking maybe at first was, was she trying to gauge how much to put in there based on his body weight? Well, we're going to get to that. Okay, because that might actually have something to do with it. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking. So the detective wanted to know, was there anything more? If there's any more physical evidence that could tie Sherelle to the murder or the planning of Scott's murder, it would be really helpful. Um, And Nancy said there was actually something else that could potentially tie her to it. Sherelle had not known how much antifreeze she would need. And this is a time before Google. (laughs) Okay. So a few weeks before, she put in an emergency phone call to Ottawa's Poison Control Center. She gave them a false name and said that she had walked into her garage and found her little brother, and she believed that he had ingested some antifreeze. When asked how much, Sherelle said, I don't know, about two cups, and he weighs 130 pounds. Is that enough to kill him? You got to be kidding me, right? So she was trying to she figure was. out okay. how yeah. much antifreeze would kill a man who's 130 pounds. Based on what she thought his weight was. Yes. 
But I mean, really, at the end of the day, two cups of antifreeze would kill anybody. I'm sure anybody. that's still a lot and yeah. probably should not be ingested. <laughs> yeah. Because it was a 1.5 liter bottle of wine. It wasn't just like your typical 750 milliliters. Like, right. So you were able to displace more because there's more wine. So the woman on the other end of the phone at Poison Control said that that was a lethal amount and that she should get her brother to the nearest hospital and then gave her the name and address of the nearest hospital. So I'm kind of like rushing forward because it would take a warrant for them to um, get the records from the Poison Control Center, but eventually they do. And the detectives would gain access to the records of Poison Control and they would find the notes from this operator. And the fact that this call had been placed from a payphone on December 5th, so 23 days before the murder. And this operator, who, might I add, is a cutie for doing this, about an hour after she received that call, she called the local hospital to check and see if the girl that she called ever went in with her brother and to see how they were doing. And the hospital said no one ever came in for antifreeze poisoning. So that was why it was kind of marked a potential prank call. Wow. You see, people try to do the right thing, and here you are taking advantage, like you always do. Yes. Wow. But before they would even have the warrant for the poison control calls, the detectives were relying completely on Nancy because... If they were unable to get that warrant, they would have to just use Nancy again to testify because she'd witnessed Sherelle make that call. But in July of 1995, something scary happened. Nancy was sitting at home when she heard a window break. She heard a man outside screaming for her to come out and get what she deserved. She called the police and they responded pretty quickly. Outside of Nancy's residence, they found the man that had been responsible for the broken window and the threats. It had been Chris Mickle, Sherelle's new boyfriend. Okay. So now she's convincing the new lover. Like, she's convincing all of her new partners to go after the old partners. Because it was always, Scott is abusing the kids. Now it's Nancy's trying to ruin me. I can't. What a scam artist, honestly. Yeah. Oh, so, Mickle, so Mickle had been arrested and charged with mischief and criminal harassment. In his interview, he stated that Sherelle had told him that Nancy was a dangerous person and a threat to her and the life they had together. It was then that the detective sat Nancy down and told her, Listen, we're actually a bit scared for you. We believe that Sherelle killed her husband tried to kill Gay Doherty, and now she has convinced her new boyfriend to come here and do this to you. So they're trying to say that they didn't think that these were just threats and that maybe in order for her to be safe, she would have to leave town for a bit. But Nancy was steadfast. She said that she was not going to be scared out of town by Sherelle. Plus, she told them she had a civil case pending against her, for the $6,000 and the property that still had not been returned to her. She made it clear she was staying. She believed it was the right thing to do. She kept saying, I need to face the consequences for what I did. So now Nancy may have put on a brave face for detectives. 
but in reality, she was scared of what could happen to her. She expressed her true feelings to her co-workers at the Killaloo Resource Center. She told them that she was scared of Sherelle because she knew that she was capable of murder. And she felt like she just had this overwhelming sense of, I have to make this right, so I can't leave town. Well, on August 20th, 1997, the advice that the detectives had given Nancy rang true. Detective Leppert was awoken in the middle of the night by a phone call that there had been a fire at his witness's house. Okay. Now that can't be coincidence now. It seemed that a fire had begun in Nancy's living room, and she had died as a result. Oh, no. From burns and carbon monoxide poisoning. Nancy was dead. That is your lead witness. But why wasn't she under protection, though? Right? I I mean, maybe I'm not too privy to like what why could uh, the like process how is, but could they they could only protect someone so much yeah but i know but if you're getting evidence together and she's your only witness to possibly put someone behind bars for murder right i would think that you would try to put her in like not witness protection but put well, her they in... told her we want you to leave town and she was refusing i know i know what you're yeah. saying they should have stationed an officer outside they could have done that house. yeah it wasn't done. I mean, she didn't even have to leave town. They could have just put her somewhere else. They could have put her in a hotel or a motel well, or something. Well, I think this is why the detectives were... Detective Leppert was very upset by Nancy's death because he did hold himself responsible for it. He felt like he could have done more. Um, he could have pushed her harder to be safe or tried to protect her more. The aftermath of the fire was brutal. Her whole house was charred. Nothing left. And it was clear that this was a message and the fire had been started intentionally. Nancy was the key to the case. She was going to be what put Shirelle away. She was the missing piece to every part of the puzzle. And now she had been murdered after a threat was made. So now Shirelle was responsible for two deaths and the attempted murder of somebody else. To think that she's not involved is insane. The, the threats, making good on those threats, getting people involved in murders. I mean, obviously, she is guilty. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, everybody has to know that she is involved in some form or another. Right. I can't even believe this is even taking place. Or that place she got someone to, to do, do it. it. Like her new boyfriend, for example. Well, your first thought would be her live-in boyfriend now, Chris Mickle. But Mickle was in jail for the charges that he faced back in July. So it couldn't have been him. And if there was one thing that detectives knew about Sherelle, it was that she rarely got her own hands dirty. By questioning some people in town, the detectives were able to determine that Sherelle had been hanging out with a very interesting new friend group. While Mickle was away in prison, Sherelle was hanging out with a group of boys who were a lot younger than her. In high school. Um, what? Yeah. She allowed them to party at her house. They were allowed to drink and smoke pot there, and they thought it was cool. Sherelle set her sights on the first impressionable kid she could. She chose 16-year-old Brent Crawford. Brent, in an effort to impress Sherelle, told her some things that he had overheard at his job at the Killaloo Resource Center. He worked with Nancy. 
Are you serious? So everything. So when Nancy was saying there, like Nancy was telling all of her coworkers everything that Sherelle did and that she's capable of murder and that she was scared. And in turn, Brent says all of this to Sherelle. Oh, my God. Yep. And Sherelle begins to spin her webs around this young boy. And she tells Brent that Nancy's out to get her, that Nancy's the one that's crazy. And she also, while she's spinning her web, initiates a sexual and manipulative relationship with a 16-year-old boy at the age of 44. And Talk uh, about who's the predator, right? I know. So she's saying Nancy's trying to frame her for the murder, and Nancy's trying to get her kids taken away. So to say the very least, the police wanted to speak with Brent. They want to know what's going on here. So when they went to talk to his friends because they couldn't find him, they told the detectives that Brent had said something to them about being involved in the fire that killed the woman who had been bothering Sherelle. They asked where he was, and they said, well, he skipped town. He's hitchhiking across Canada. I'm okay. That's weird. Is, are they just covering for him, or is he actually oh, no. doing this? He's actually doing this. So this is actually pretty cool. The detectives, with help from others at the Ontario Provincial Police, set up a sting operation where they found out where Brent was in northern Ontario. And a patrol officer was the one who had spotted him and reported it in. So the detective sent in an experienced undercover officer as a truck driver to pick him up. Wow, okay. So this undercover officer picks him up, and as they're driving, he begins to have a conversation with him. He said that he was driving to meet his brother in British Columbia, and that he was going to be starting a job with his brother that was going to generate a lot of cash. So Brent piped in and said, oh, I'm looking for work. And the officer said, yeah, but I'm going to be honest with you. Like, if you take this job, you have to be okay with doing things that aren't exactly legal. And Brent said, I'm up for it. Whatever your brother needs, I can do. So while they continued to drive, Brent seemed like he really wanted the job. So in order to make himself seem like he was good for the job, he volunteered his criminal resume to the undercover police officer. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, you can't forget he's 16 years old. Right. So he told him that he had killed someone once and he'd been so good at it that he'd never been caught. Brent confessed that on the night of August 19th, he had broken into Nancy's home. He had a knife with him. His initial plan had been to cut her throat while she was sleeping. And he was going to do it because he loved Sherelle and he didn't want Nancy to ruin her life. Plus, Sherelle said that she would buy him a motorcycle and give him $300. Wow. Okay. Wow. Cool dude. So when he got into Nancy's house, he found her asleep in the living room. And in front of her were a lot of candles on her coffee table. So he figured it would be easier to just knock the table over and have her die in the fire. That way it would less likely, the murder would less likely be tied back to him. So he overturned the table, watched the fire burn for a while. And once he was satisfied that it would destroy the house and kill Nancy, he left. 
So the whole time that he was talking, they were recording him. Yes. Now, in the United States, this is not allowed. It's called entrapment. Right. But in Canada, all good. See that? I mean, hey, if it works. I mean, he's talking. We got to put these people behind bars. Well, these in Canada. Are crazy. I know. Well, in Canada, it's good as long as there's a prior judicial ruling and they can't go outside the parameters of what the judge says is okay to do or talk about. I'm sure every listener here would be like, you know what? I don't even care. Take rundown. If, if I have to give away some of my civil liberties right now, I want that person in, in uh, behind bars. Well, that's... It, because of what she did to Scott. That's the social contract, according to Thomas Hobbes. Fun, historical... There you go. I like how you always loop thinking. in some history, yeah. but it's true. I mean, I want this. I want her behind bars. Well, after this ride is over, Brent was arrested. He told police that he did it for love and a motorcycle, basically. <laughs> he loved Sherelle, and she was so good, so he wanted to protect her. Like, this woman is truly a gifted manipulator, which is terrifying. Nancy had been framing her. This woman really, I think, is super dangerous because she's able to convince so many people from so many different walks of life. It's not like she has like, oh, her victims are always young. It Age was, groups, yeah. It was gay that she had convinced. It was Nancy. It was Chris Mickle. And now it's Brent. And it had been Scott for decades. And uh, she also always referred to Brent as her puppet when she talked about him. Ew. So Brent Crawford was convicted of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison on February 28, 1997. He actually, in 2011, while given a day pass from a minimum security prison, never returned. So technically, he kind of like escaped. It was like a soft escape. But he was arrested shortly thereafter and brought back to prison. And now back to Sherelle. On February 1st, 2001, she was found guilty of first-degree murder in the case of Scott Dell. She was also found guilty of intimidating a witness. She was given a life sentence. She is still in prison to this day. And this was a long and complicated case for detectives who are still haunted by the fact that Nancy Fillmore's death happened under their watch. But at least... Sherelle is finally paying for the crimes and manipulation that she had lived her life doing. Yeah. I mean, I know this might sound a little much, but I find that what she did and the amount of manipulation and and, an emotional torture that she put on people, that she is evil in, in its purest form in real, it's like embodied real evil. It's, this this case is insane. And I think that she's exactly where she belongs. I agree. And I hope they just throw away the key. And that's it. Because someone like that has ravaged so many people's lives. And she should be ashamed of herself. And I hope that she really just sits there and thinks about it. Right. That not only did she do that to all these victims, but she also harmed her children as well in the process. This wasn't just all the, you know, it, it's internal. It's you know. It's right. it's external and internal because you, your internal family you also screwed them up as well, and that's so sad. You did not care about anyone's feelings and what you did. No. 
it's just callous and disgusting. It really, I mean, this is just insane. This and whole the, and case. the and the people that, and I want I could say I could sit here and say the people that loved you, but Scott loved you, you know, unconditionally. Let so many things slide where a lot of people would have just been out the door. And to see someone hurt in that kind of manner, in that way, it's disgusting. I know. But I don't think she was capable of accepting that love. Like, wh- Whereas, like, we can look at this situation and say, like, oh, my, you could have had a great life with this guy. I don't think she wanted it. Then you walk away. Instead of, you know, putting a leash on him and dragging him through the mud. I think she feels like people exist to serve her and provide her with things. I think you're right. And he, when he didn't die, she felt like he owed her. But how crazy is that? I mean, John, we're not talking about someone who's... (laughs) I know. Rational here. I know. But I think that that is what she... She thinks people owe her things. And I don't know where that stems from, and I don't think we're ever going to find out. But even if it does, in her mind, stem from abuse that she suffered as a child, that's so unfair... To put that on everyone you meet in your life. Yeah, agreed. And use it as a as a crutch in this case. You this know, is, with Scott anyway. This is so wild. I told you this one. It would wow. get, it would get you. I, you know what? <laughs> I was I, I'm I was mad. I, I I'm I'm mad right now. Even <laughs> I, and it kind of like it kind of took my like. It, it was sounds, emotional. This sounds so weird. It like took my breath away because I kind of like I had more to say. But like as I'm listening, I'm just sitting there like it's just like seething, like oh, like I I just couldn't this really get poor, it out. Poor poor man. Yeah, this poor man. Everyone involved, the women that you know, the women that were hurt or killed over this. Yeah. The sixteen, you know what, the sixteen year old boy. Yeah, he did it. You know, um, and he got what he deserved. But he was very callous was, about it. Yes, I will say. Yeah. Um, I would have seen him more as a victim if he didn't act as callous as he did afterwards. Agreed. Um, but he was still manipulated. He was manipulated, but I think that he um, was not remorseful whatsoever. Yeah. In his trial and the way he spoke about things. So, I right. mean, I, I, I don't want to kind of, I don't want to put him, paint him in that picture because that's not how he No, I, I think responded. all I could say is that he was manipulated just like others were. Yeah, he, yeah. in a way, is... One of the many puppets of Sherelle Dell. Right. Oof. Crazy, right? Crazy case. Well, before we leave, what we want to do is we want to say thank you again to everyone. um, Because here we are in our sixth year anniversary. So we're so excited. But we want to give an especial big thank you to our new Patreon supporters. Zoe Kwan, Renee Steinbeck, Sam Beeb, Natasha Argenti, Dana Lands. Faith Dunn, Karen Cogswell, Jen Paradiso, Julia Arbuckle, Curtis Burnett, Marwa Ali, Robin Johnson, Jody McMahon, Cassie Gonzalez, Julie McCluskey, Elizabeth Phillips, Allison Perry, Lindy Duncan, Mary F., Mariah Bird, up to her pledge, and J.M., Thank you guys for donating on Patreon, and we hope you're enjoying those extra bonus episodes. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.